Blog Talk Radio. to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett. I want to welcome the chatters and callers to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. You can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have a wonderful lineup of experts who will share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. All of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. Well, tonight's show has been featured on the Blog Talk Radio's show homepage all day today, and special thanks to the Blog Talk Radio team for this recognition. Now, if you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions of the guests. Following the show, you are invited to post comments or questions in the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com. Well, I am so happy tonight to introduce my guest for tonight's show. The title of the show is Reclaiming Grimes, author of the first fugitive slave narrative. My guest, Regina Mason, has spent 15 years, can you imagine, 15 years authenticating the pioneering narrative of her direct ancestor, William Grimes, author of the first Fugitive Slave Narrative in American History. So right now we're going to hear about this amazing, amazing person. Not only is Regina the gatekeeper of her family's history, she is also co-editor of the new edition of her forefather's book, Life of William Grimes, The Runaway Slave. She is currently working on the documentary, Gina's Journey, The Search for William Grimes. And many of you have had the opportunity to see the wonderful trailer produced for this documentary. So let me give a warm welcome to Regina Mason to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Regina, are you online? Yes, I am. Hi, and I'm so happy that you're online to share with us this amazing story. So let's start at the beginning, Regina. 
please share with the listeners what prompted you to begin your exploration into your family's history. Well, first of all, Bernice, I just want to thank you for the wonderful opportunity to be on your show. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. (laughs) Well, listen, now you've asked me what prompted me to begin my family history, my search. Well, they say to um, understand someone's journey, you've got to know where they've been. So I'm going to take you all way back, back to the spring of 1971 when I was in fifth grade. My teacher gave a class assignment on origins and ancestry. And this simple assignment I struggled with because it forced me to look squarely at American slavery. And on the night I asked my mother for my roots, for the first time, slavery had been made upfront and personal. I learned that my mother's great-grandfather had been a child slave, freed perhaps by the Emancipation Proclamation, and that he was a product of an interracial union between the plantation owner and enslaved mother. So this was the first time that I'm hearing about slavery in my own family. Slavery, the topic um, back then, was spoken of in general generalities. It was not specific in a way that it would impact me. But on this particular evening when we talked about my family history, it was, as I mentioned, very upfront and personal. Um, there were themes that surfaced that night between my mother when we talked about the family history that just went beyond names, places, and occupations. They were unavoidable subjects that made me squirm because they pointed to an enslaved heritage that had been shrouded in miscegenation. So whatever inspiring details that my mother tried to tell me about our family's past, and please believe me, there were wonderful things that she did say, things that I should have embraced, but I just couldn't get beyond the inherent complexities of this newly revealed enslaved heritage. And, and, you know, just listening to you, I mean, this is before we even heard of the movie Roots. Exactly. And Kunta Kente. That's right. And so you were exposed to something that many others perhaps have not had, a mother or grandmother to share that information. That's exactly right. So, you know, it's the 70s, the early 70s at that. And there's this big movement going on in our communities, black people struggling for their rights, struggling to write their own agenda, struggling to fit in in ways that weren't defined for us. So all of this is going on, and here I am in my this Catholic or parochial school that I attended, and there was no Black History Week, no Black History Month, We never celebrated black achievement, and we had not one black teacher in the entire school. So, again, there's this movement going on around me, but I'm sheltered from it. I'm I'm just, I'm coming up. I'm learning, you know, as a young person to make sense of all this. Uh So Uh this this is why I had this struggle. But the good thing about it is that I got beyond the the class assignment, and 
but I became more aware. I was sort of like a different person afterwards. There was a loss of innocence. So this was not a bad thing, but it made me more, more aware. I started to pay attention. I started listening to the news about what was going on in my community. I started mm-hmm. reading books, buying about black people, and so on and so forth. And actually, when we think about 1971, black studies departments were, and ethnic studies departments were really just very new or just even springing up at, That's right. at that time. And, you know, there were students out there demanding a curriculum that was more relevant to their experience. So That's this right. is all happening as I'm trying to come to terms with American slavery. Well, anyway, after the class assignment, my mother took me to see my Auntie Catherine. Aunt Catherine is my mother's first cousin. But like many African-American families, when there's an elder in the family, we just don't call them by their first name. It was either Aunt this or Uncle that. So Mm -hmm. for me, Auntie Catherine, giving her that title was so appropriate because she was just a wonderful person. So my mom, she, you know, she laid out the grim truths of an enslaved past that we were not exempt but, from, but it was my Aunt Catherine who um, told me how we managed to carve out a life for ourselves as we navigated stifling America. Mm-hmm. Now, Aunt Catherine was a gifted storyteller. She loved to talk about the family history. Um, the one story, however, that really impressed me was a a story she knew very little about. She told me three things about um, this man that essentially amounted to three little clues, but they Uh were important to me, whereas they were not so important to the other family members. But anyway, she said that an ancestor of, of ours was associated with the Underground Railroad. She said that his name was Grimes, and that he was from New Haven, Connecticut. And that's all she could tell me. And I can wow. remember, I remember <laughs> every time seeing her. Now, who was this person? Who was this person? It was important to me because I'm just learning about slavery. I'm learning a little bit about the Underground Railroad. So the reference to it was huge because it signaled to me that someone in my family defied a very cruel system. Either this person um, ran away from slavery or maybe had something to do with the abolition of, or, or maybe was an abolitionist like Frederick Douglass or something like that. That's how I viewed this person. But we didn't know what capacity that um, this Grimes person was in association to the Underground Railroad. So... I just had that little bit of information, those three little clues that stayed with me for over 20 years before I decided I'm going to see if there's any measure of truth in the stories that Auntie Catherine told me, and I want to see if I can find William Grimes. Well, Regina, what what you are saying, and, and I'm sure the listeners are picking this up, is the value of oral history. That is absolutely right. There's always and I repeat, always some measure of truth to what you're hearing, you know. You are Um, so right. 
So it's good to have these stories, especially when you can speak to the elders in the family. That is so important. They are so invaluable to your family's history. Okay. Well, did your family have any any documents at home uh, to go along with this oral history? Well, let me say this. I heard about documents. <laughs> in fact, there was this talk about a Bible in the family. Nobody had seen it or, or heard of it, but Aunt Catherine had mentioned it, and I'm going to get into that a little later. Um, also... One beautiful um, document or um, keepsake that was in the family was an autograph book. And I saw that. Auntie Catherine would pull that out occasionally, and it was absolutely beautiful. It belonged to my um, great-grandmother, mm-hmm. and it was dated back to the 1880s. Beautiful, elegant script. But it didn't make any sense to me because I would see names and these wonderful little sayings, but I didn't know who these people were. And Auntie Catherine didn't know who these people were. Mm-hmm. So while it was a beautiful keepsake, it really didn't mean much other than it belonged to my great-grandmother. But as I got deeper and deeper into my research, that autograph book would prove to be an invaluable source of information that would connect New Haven, Connecticut to San Francisco, California. So later on it became quite powerful and revealing. So, so yes, there was that um, document in the family, but nobody knew what to do with it. Well, did you... Let's let's talk about any challenge your challenges, and also the the resources. I mean, just take us through your process. Okay, okay. Well, what I think I should do first is tell you how I stumbled on this narrative. So okay. I mentioned to you that um, twenty years later, after that class assignment, and by this time I'm a young wife and mother, I I decided I was going to take up genealogy as a hobby. And at the same time, I started pairing the process of genealogy with books on abolition and the Underground Railroad. I was hoping to find um, mention of a man named Grimes from New Haven, Connecticut, who had an Underground Railroad connection that somehow might authenticate the family lore. So I began this massive search. The project seemed very logical at first, okay? It Mm -hmm. sounded like, you know, this is doable. But after months and months of dead ends and disappointments, the reality was, okay, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to find this crime. But at the same time, I'm still finding family history documents. I'm still finding those genealogical treasures not necessarily pertaining to crimes, but I'm building in my own family history research in terms of census returns, in terms of um, 
vital statistics, you know, marriage records, birth and death records, and so forth. So I'm accumulating all this as we're going. But at the same time, I'm just reading everything I can on the Underground Railroad. So Uh then right when I was about to abandon the idea of even finding Grimes, something really remarkable happened. I had a bunch of library books that were due to be returned. And as I'm thumbing through it, I realized, oh, hmm, here's a particular title that I hadn't looked at yet. And it was Charles L. Bloxton's book, The Underground Railroad, First Person Narrative. So I sat on my couch and I began thumbing through the free New England section. And within the first two paragraphs, I read something that just made my heart race. Bloxman talked about the Underground Railroad developing in New Haven, Connecticut around the 1820s. He said among the first fugitives to reach this city via the Freedom Road was William Grimes from Savannah, Georgia. He further went on to say that this William Grimes escaped slavery from Savannah with the help of Yankee sailors who hid him among bales of cotton on a vessel that was bound for New York City. And then Bloxton went on to say that Underground Railroad workers directed this Grimes person on foot to New Haven, Connecticut. Those were the three clues that Aunt Catherine had given me. That is right. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> Aunt Catherine said the Grimes surname. She said someone from um, New Haven, Connecticut. And the fact that I was reading a book about the Underground Railroad just made me feel like there's too many coincidences here. That I've That's got right. to follow this trail. Mm-hmm. So how did Bloxton get his? Information. There were no footnotes, but of course there was a bibliography, and his bibliography announced that this William Grimes had written his life story and published it himself in 1855. So I had to get this narrative. I had to read what was in it, but how was I going to get it? Well, I found out later on that William Grimes's story had been republished in the anthology Five Black Lives, Mm, and it was republished uh in 1971, while I'm this fifth grader. It's very interesting that the interesting connect like that. So I went to Cody's Bookstore in Berkeley, California, which is by the University of California, it's no longer there, but it's legendary in its day. They had three copies of Five Black Lives on their shelf. And I didn't know if this Grimes man belonged to me or not. It didn't matter. Something deep down told me he did, and I bought all three copies. <laughs> Good for you. I bought all three copies. <laughs> but listen, Bernice, as I delved into this man's story, the language just astonished me. Unrelenting misery plagued this man's life, leaving him a profoundly embittered man. Never had I even imagined.
imagine the depth of the slave's sufferings until I read this man's story. Mm-hmm. The slave system that William Grimes described was far more cutthroat than anything that I could possibly imagine. He was 10 years old when he was sold away from the arms of his grieving mother to a far-off plantation. He grew up like a wild weed, friendless and motherless with no surrogate slave family to embrace him. This was just not the story that I had heard mm-hmm. before. This wasn't the story that Roots told. You know, we can remember, if you know the story of um, Roots, we remember Fiddler and embracing a young Kunta Kinte in Alice That's Taylor's right. movie. But here, William Grimes told another side of the story. Again, he grew up like a wild Weed. He was repeatedly forced outside of the house servant circle by house slaves looking out for their own interests. Mm-hmm. I was numb. I was just numb. But I realized. And this is his own words that you're reading. You're not reading what somebody else wrote about him. Right. You're reading what he is saying. I am reading a first-hand account of what he experienced. And it just blew me away. I had read, by that time, a couple of slave narratives. I had read, of course, Frederick Douglass. I had read Harriet Jacobs, but nothing. Their work did not prepare me for this man's story. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna put, we're going to take a quick break because we need to hear more about this, okay? All right. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Bennett, and you're listening to Regina Mason. Regina has just shared with us first hand narrative of her great 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 grandfather William Grimes' life as a runaway slave and what it was like at 10 years old. And Regina, I'm going to ask. Folks, if they want to call in and ask you a question, uh, you can make a comment. You know, just please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. In the meantime, we want to continue to hear this story, Regina, so continue on. Sure. 
Now, I was telling you that I'm reading this narrative. I'm trying to understand whether or not this William Grimes person is in some way related to me. But his book doesn't read like an autobiography that we would imagine today. His book reads like a list of grievances against America. He's exposing slavery. He, he's upset um, about being enslaved and what it meant to be a quote-unquote free person of color in the North. But I'm reading this narrative trying to find out if I could find a way to link the past with the present. Mm-hmm. So I kept reading this book looking for names and places that might ring a bell with my Aunt Catherine. Um, I, you know, she was the family historian, so I wanted her to, I wanted to be able to give her names. I wanted to ask her, is whatever name related to us? But William Grimes is not talking about his wife. He's not talking about his family. He is really just, he has the new Republic of America on blast in his narrative. It Mm -hmm. wasn't until I got to the end of his book that he mentions and identifies his wife as the lovely and all-accomplished Clarissa Caesar. And Mm -hmm. so I I immediately phoned Aunt Catherine, and I asked her, I said, is Caesar a family name? And I can still feel her searching her mind, and she said, you know, I think it is, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But Bernice, it was her next comment that just blew me away. She said, oh, Gina, I've got to get you the family Bible. All of the names are written in it. This is the first time I'm hearing of a family Bible, and I'm floored. I'm saying, a Bible? Who has it? Where is it? And why didn't I hear about this before? She says, well, you know, we do have a family Bible, and when the weather gets better, I'm going to go up to Portland, Oregon, to see if it's tucked away in my sister's attic. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Those are her words. And and I said, well, you know, I'm thinking, well, Aunt Catherine, can you get there in a week? Can you get there? (laughs) Better weather for Aunt Catherine was like a whole year away. So I was put on her time, and I couldn't stand it. I have this narrative in front of me. I want to know if this man is related. Oh, I'm feeling it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm calling all the other um, seniors in the family, they said, oh, I've heard about this Bible, but I've never seen it. My own mother, she had never seen it. So, you know, I, I started to think that this Bible, if there had been one, it was long gone by now. So I put the, the thought of the Bible out of my head, and I said, well, you know, I'm just going to have to do the paper trail. Mm-hmm. I decided I was going to go up to the Family History Center through the Mormon Temple, and I wanted to see if I could find William Grimes, the author. I wanted to see who was in his family, and I wanted to compare family names, my family names, with his family names. And I thought, well, maybe that would be a way that I could make the connection. So I go up to the Family History Center, and I start searching from um, the 1820 census, the 1860 census, and this is Mm -hmm. all in the free state of Connecticut, where, of course, 
they list all family names. Okay. Whether you're African American or not, this is the free state of Connecticut, quote unquote free quote unquote free state. So anyway, I did find William Grimes the author and I found a host of names. Wonderful names. And he had a rather large family. Even found his in laws and so forth. But now where where are you what what sources are you finding this information? This is in the US Census. And the census state records, okay. Of, that's right. In the state uh-huh. of Connecticut. Uh-huh. All right? Because remember, Aunt Catherine said that the family came from New Haven. There was a family connection in New Haven, Connecticut, and then also the author, William Grimes, this particular William Grimes, fled to New Haven, Connecticut New Haven. from Savannah, Georgia. So I do find the author, William Grimes, and his family. But not one name, not one name cross-referenced with my family. It was awful, but I had done what Tony Burrow said not to do, and that was going back too, going back too far too fast. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I didn't find what I was looking for. But by this time... Whether Grimes was an ancestor or not, I was completely sucked into this ex-slave narrative. So I did what most folks do when they hit a brick wall, and that was turn my attention to another aspect of the search. Okay. William Grimes talks about a murder that takes place on his father's plantation. So I need to tell the audience that William Grimes is a mulatto slave. He's writing about he's writing during slavery times and he's very secretive. He has blanks in his narrative. He does not mention his father's name, but he talks about him being a wealthy planter in King George County, Virginia. He also talks about his mother being an enslaved woman who was owned by Dr. Stewart on another plantation. So this really was a revelation to me because, yes, I had learned about um, miscegenation and the relationships between the slave master, or excuse me, the slave owner and enslaved women. So I knew that dynamic, but I had never heard of a slave owner having a relationship on, with a slave woman on another plantation. Plantation, okay. So adds to the dynamics of the slave culture. It was just really surprising to me. It's probably not an unheard of thing, but just learning about it was really kind of a bizarre situation. So William Grimes makes it very clear he is a bastard child, and in the slave states, slaves followed the condition of the mother. So yes. he was, of course, also owned by Dr. Stewart, not by his father. Mm-hmm. And he was, therefore, a slave because of his mother's condition. So, But getting back to the murder that takes place on the plantation, even though his father, Grimes, is his name is blank, I thought, well, okay, 
if I could find out about the murder on this plantation, then perhaps it would reveal William's father and the plantation. So this is the late 20th century thinking. I'm thinking a reporter's there, and they covered the story, <laughs> right? Certainly, of course. But, but it was logical to me. So I thought, all right, I will do this newspaper search, but that would take months of dedication, if not years, to sort through, because I'd have to identify certain newspapers of the region and where would I go to do that? So here I'm, this novice running around trying to figure out how can I ascertain this information. Well, one day I got very lucky. I was over at Sutro Library in San Francisco, which is the California State Library, and I came across a title. And this was in the card catalog. We don't use card catalogs anymore, but this gives you an idea how far back this was. Mm-hmm. I came across a title called Genealogical Abstracts from 18th Century Virginia Newspapers. Two citations emerged from that publication that corroborated William's story. The second one just made me gasp out loud. And it says something like, Robert Galloway, a merchant of Fredericksburg, was shot and killed by Benjamin Grimes of Eagle's Nest, King George County. And it was reported in the Virginia Herald on August 7th, 1794. Oh, I can imagine your reaction to that. I, I, I screamed. It was unreal. Unreal. So, of course, I went directly to the main source. And through the Virginia Historical Society, I was able to get all the newspapers and even the court records of this trial that went on. But there was the name Benjamin Grimes, and there was the plantation Eagle's Nest. So I started taking this narrative to an exciting new level. I started doing something that no other scholar had done or attempted to do with the Grimes narrative. Mm -hmm. And yet, I had no idea whether this man belonged to me or not. Okay, so you're still searching for that connection. I'm still searching for that connection. But, in the meantime, I'm finding out about the history of the plantation Eagle's Nest, which still stands today. And it can be traced to Benjamin Grimes' third paternal grandfather, who is William Fitzhugh, who was a very wealthy man of Virginia in the 17th century. By 1686, he had built Eagle's Nest, which was a mile north of the Potomac River in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Now, the estate remained in the family for 300 years. 300 years. 14 generations of family lived on that Eagle's Nest plantation. And it was finally sold to outsiders in 1974, and that was the year I began my first year in high school. So it goes to show you that slavery is not that far removed from us. Mm -hmm. No, it isn't. Uh, It's not. There's a misconception. 
perception that that was so long ago, but when you can factor it in to today and you begin to see that it's still with us. Now, we have a question coming out of the chat, and I know you're going to get to this, but the question is, have you met the descendants of that family that occupied Eagle's Nest Plantation? I have met, not face-to-face, but over the Internet and telephone, some of the descendants of the Grimeses and the Fitzhughes and also the Thornton family. And the Thornton family was um, the second family that owned William Grimes. William Grimes was, uh, had ten different masters. He was a, quite a rebellious slave. But ironically, these descendants of the Grimeses and the Fitzhughes, they have sought me out. They were able to get a hold of the, the narrative life of William Grimes. Um, this the latest edition, and um, they contacted me, and I thought that was very, very refreshing because um, when I went home to Virginia, when I wanted to bring the story home to about William Grimes to Virginia, I, I wasn't all that well received as it seems as though the region was not ready to embrace the Grimes story. And that mm-hmm. was in the year 2000. But I'm so optimistic today that that um, things have changed. Now, when they they you said they already they had a copy of the of the book. Right. So that means they were aware of of how he suffered That's and right. the cruelty. That's right. And mm-hmm. the first thing, and this is the. Um, my edition of the Grimes narrative, along with my co-editor, William L. Andrews, um, they, each letter that I received, they were, the first thing, very apologetic, mm-hmm. which was, I thought, heartfelt and sincere, although it had nothing to do with them in terms of the enslavement. Uh, certainly, they, um, perhaps they benefited, you know, when you have a plantation that's been in the family 300 years, you certainly have benefited from the fruits of American that labor. slavery. And mm-hmm. That labor, exactly. <laughs> so, yes, to answer that question, I am in touch with um, some of the descendants of the people that enslaved my family and then also blood-related now. So let's go. Excuse no, go me. Ahead. Go ahead. I was no. going to say I I know we're 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 talking about the the connection with the family, but at that point, you you you've now found the newspaper uh, account of the murder. Right. And so and you see there's this name Benjamin Grimes. So where are you now in that research? You see Benjamin Grimes' name. Right. You understand that uh, William was on a different plantation right? with his mother. So how are you tying this together? Because we now have Clarissa. Well, Clarissa is uh, William Grimes' wife. We do not know, and I don't know today, the name of his mother. I have a very good idea, but I haven't been able to find that single piece of evidence that would solidify the connection. But I 
have seen the name in slave inventories and so forth, and I, I feel that I know who his mother is. It's just that solidifying connection. So, you know, I, I'm still on that search. But getting uh-huh. back to Benjamin Grimes, even though William is on the Stewart plantation, he's very clear about who his father is. Okay. The newspaper account solidifies the fact that Benjamin Grimes is, in fact, the father of William Grimes. And we know this based on what William writes about his father in his narrative. So here we are with the plantation eagle's nest that goes back to 1686. And I mentioned that 14 generations live there, and that, of course, is the plantation that um, Benjamin Grimes lived on. Um, Fitzhugh is a very prominent name in Virginia history. He was um, a highly respected lawyer, and he was established in the oldest legislative body of the Virginia House of Burgesses. And he married very well and built a fortune as both a lawyer and tobacco planter, and this was way before Cotton became king in the South. When he died in 1701, William Fitzhugh left his heirs well over 54,000 acres of land. Not only that, they were first families of Virginia. They had, they were assured so, social access to very influential families, such as uh, the Lees, the famous Lees, and uh, even George Washington. So to <laughs> this was the history lesson that just was not taught in my classroom, any of my classrooms, and that's the beauty of genealogy. You will be able to put your family on a timeline, a historical timeline, and understand how their movements based on laws, based on circumstances happening in their, in their community. So here I am getting this tremendous history lesson, and I'm still not closer to finding William Grimes, but I am authenticating this narrative in this man's story. But the bottom line is, is there a connection here? So, you know, there were days when I thought, okay, I'm trailing the wrong family line, and even if it was the right one, was I wasting my time? Would I ever be able to make that connection? And there were times, Bernice, when I wasn't so sure I wanted to even claim William Grimes as my own. His world was so bizarre. It was In what way? I hardly comprehend. Well, mm-hmm. he was a very superstitious man. He believed mm-hmm. in witchcraft, and he was convinced that a slave witch haunted him. So there's these dynamics, this culture that I just could not understand. Mm-hmm. He sought out fortune tellers for a preview of his fate. He was engaged in fights with different slaves. Remember I said he came up like a wild weed. Yes. He had he was also the subject of such horrible violence by those awful and wicked slave drivers. He seemed to be a broken soul at times, psychologically wounded by a viciously oppressive system. Nothing I had ever read prepared me, nothing on slavery prepared me for 
William Grimes. But Mm -hmm. still, I dug deeper into this narrative. I wanted to reach the core of this rebellious slave's life. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I partnered with my co-editor, Dr. William L. Andrews, did I learn just how precedent-setting the Grimes narrative is. And Dr. Andrews, wonderful, wonderful person, he's a professor of English at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's an expert on early African-American autobiography. It was in his book, To Tell a Free Story, the first century of Afro-American autobiography, that I learned that he was the only living scholar at the time who had written at length about William Grimes. Mm-hmm. So I had to know this man. I had to. I wanted Dr. Andrews to know that I had been researching William Grimes. I wanted him to know that. Um, I wanted him to know what I knew. So we developed a relationship via um, email. So mm-hmm. I periodically would contact him and share information that I found and so forth. And he was always so very, very gracious. And it wasn't until I found a series of letters that showed the, um, essentially the negotiation for William Grimes' freedom. Bill wrote me back this long letter. He goes, you know, you really should bring this narrative to light. And he said that he could help me do this. So he was the one that broached the idea of republishing the Grimes narrative. And so we now have someone calling in, and unfortunately I can't see your area code. However, I can call out the first three numbers, 360, and if you have a question or a comment, please turn down your computer sound so that when you speak we won't get feedback. Do you have a question or a comment? Yeah, I just wanted to say hi to uh, Regina and to say that it's uh, Bill and Oh, wonderful. Thank you for thank you for the little uh story about the work that you and I did together. <laughs> um but it was it was mainly Regina's work and and me just trying to help um, make it possible for that work to be exposed to the audience that it deserved to be exposed to. Well, well it, I- it's really wonderful to, to hear your voice, and thank you for calling in. And so you and Regina collaborated, or you said you were just kind of there to push her forward? Uh, share with us your role and how uh, you both looked at this narrative. Well, I had uh, studied the narrative um, back in the early 1980s and had been really intrigued by it and impressed by it, Uh, but I knew that only one scholar, and that was 30 years before the early 1980s when I first started reading and studying Grimes' narrative, only one scholar in the early 1950s had ever written anything about it. Uh, So... um, when I when I received a message, must have been maybe 
98 or 99 um, from one Regina Mason, whom I didn't know out in California, asking when was I going to get the William Grimes narrative on this um, digital library of African-American slave narratives that I was working with the University of North Carolina um, library to put on the web that I thought, well, how does, who is this person and how does she know about William Grimes? He's not exactly a well-known figure. And that was the beginning of my understanding of, of Regina and her work, which just unfolded over the next few years. And every time she talked to me about her work, I realized that she had done the kind of research that uh, only a very serious and, and very inventive scholar would do or, or would have any idea about how, how to do. So I was I was impressed, and um, the more she told me, the more impressed I was. And as as Regina said on the broadcast, at at a point where I realized she had these incredibly rare documents, these letters going back and forth between Grimes' agent and the agent of his last master. Um, I thought, gosh, this all this knowledge, all this material that she's gathered, all this expertise needs to be. Um, needs to be published so that people can read not only Grimes' story and and learn what an unusual person, what a real pioneer he was, but also learn from Regina's example and see what it takes to, to do this kind of research and see what the results can be if you're really serious and dedicated. Right, and it and it sounds like I mean this dedication was so passionate, and and Regina, I could feel your your passion, and I could also sense that it was something that you couldn't stop. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't put it down, and it took quite a while to even piece William Grimes to my family, and it wasn't until I, I told you all about the the Bible pages. Well, while I'm doing this massive research project of my own, Auntie Catherine is doing her research, too. And she goes to Portland, Oregon, and she comes home with the Bible pages. And in it is the name William Grimes. It's a death record that says August 21st, 1865. Well, I knew then that this man belonged in our family, because, and he was, in fact, the author of the first fugitive slave narrative in American history. And um, I had also found um, obituaries on William Grimes, the author, and it matched the date in the Bible pages. And so that was how that all came together. But I learned from Bill just how precedent-setting this narrative is. And I, I also see that there's only about ten minutes left to the broadcast, but Bill, could you quickly just tell Well, let me just tell you that we have more than 10 minutes. Okay. So so we do have have time, and I'm going to put you on a quick break and come back, okay? Okay, great.
back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Bennett, and you're listening to Regina Mason. And joining Regina is Dr. Williams Andrews. And Regina has just asked him a question, and I'm going to just turn it back over to you, Dr. Andrews. Um, Yeah, I'm not exactly sure that Regina finished her question. Okay, my question is this. Bill, I'd love for you to explain to the audience just how pioneering or precedent-setting the Grant's narrative is. Well, there are two things, just uh, speaking broadly. Um, Grimes was the first man or woman who went through slavery in the South and wrote about it, um, who who decided to tell the truth um, and to do it in a way that pulled no punches. So he did this at a time when really the only narratives about slavery that were in were in print or narratives that were about people who'd been enslaved in the North, or in one case, Alada Equiano, uh, someone who'd been enslaved mainly in the islands, you know, in the West Indies. Yes. So Grimes, Grimes wrote about slavery in the American South, um, and people in the North just didn't know anything about that. And that was, that was a hugely... Um, important thing for him to do, especially because he didn't try to excuse it or explain it away. He talked about the things that he'd been through, and they were pretty bad things. Um, so that was that was one thing that he did. Um, and he did this on his own. His autobiography has a subtitle written by himself. That would become a very famous subtitle for slave narratives. Frederick Douglass's narrative of 1845, the most famous slave narrative of them all, has sub his subtitle written by himself. That that book came out 20 years after William Grimes, mm-hmm. um, and and we know that Douglass had supporters and he had uh, people who helped him who helped him get started as an abolitionist lecturer who undoubtedly gave him pointers and supported him when he was writing his autobiography. But we have no evidence of anyone working with William Grimes. He really did write it by himself. And in that sense, he he told a story that he wanted to tell. He didn't have to ask anybody's permission he didn't have to clear it with anybody. He didn't have to be sure that nobody was offended if he said this or that. He just told it exactly the way he felt it. Right. That's about slavery in the South. Then the other thing that he did that was not only precedent-setting in 1825, but would remain that way for decades afterwards, he told the truth about it, what it was like to be an African-American in the North. He talked about all of the uh, discrimination, all the prejudice that he had to fight against, literally, um, on a day-to-day basis after he got to the so-called land of freedom. So the whole myth of America 
as a place where, well, if you can get out of slavery, you can go north and get to the free states. Um, well, he got to the free states, um, and by the time he got to the end of his autobiography, he was saying, well, you know, these people up north, these white people are just about as bad as the people down south. So He told it, it like he needed to tell it. Yeah, it was, a, it was an indictment of American racism, north and south, and uh, and nobody had ever done that. Frederick Douglass would not do that in 1845 in his narrative. He would not speak nearly so candidly about racism in the North as William Grimes had done 20 years previously. So he was uh, he was a trendsetter in many ways, and in, and in one sense um, he set a precedent that that uh, as far as telling the truth about racism in the North. Um, some of his most famous successors in the slave narrative tradition never went that route, never took that chance, never spoke out so openly. So, Regina, yes. when you when you read this, I mean, and you shared this information with your family, what was the general reaction? My family was so supportive all the way. The reaction, though, in terms of, establishing William Grimes as our forefather or progenitor of our family line was absolutely incredible. Um, you know, it has brought the family together in ways that I can't even describe. Um, I'm meeting family members today that want to know the family history. So it's been made a huge impact on us. And one, uh, William Grimes has given us such a tremendous sense of Pride. He's also, you know, Bill talked about how um, he wrote the, his narrative by himself, unassisted, and the nerve of him to say written by himself. To me, that's huge. He didn't have an allegiance to anyone. He was beholden to no one. And he gave himself permission at a time when black people, a black man, had no they couldn't barely even think for themselves, you know. They weren't even given that luxury. He declared, written by himself, he gave himself permission to tell his story. To, that is amazing to me. William Grimes has taught me how to dream and achieve. In the face of all the adversity that he encountered, he still had the gall to tell his story, which is why I'm here telling my story. I want people to understand, especially African Americans, that once they they look into their family histories, that they've got to share it. They've got to be the ones to to tell the story, because if they don't, who will? Absolutely. You are so right. But tell us, I mean, just tell us exactly what happened, because I think that you have just, you, you've touched on something. Who's going to tell it if we don't tell it? But he also told something else, because he ran away. Yes. But he also became a businessman. Right. And then something happened to him. Exactly. Well, he's living in the north, in free ter territory, 
as a fugitive, though, and he's been doing that, I would say, about nine years, I believe. And then his master finds him. And his master demands that he pay for his freedom. By this time, William Grimes is a property owner, okay? He's mm-hmm. married. He has children. Well, he's forced to give up the deed to his home to pay for his freedom, which is why, part of the reason why his book reads as such an outrage. Yes. Because everything, he's stripped of everything. He's virtually penniless upon the state. He says where and how he should die, he doesn't know. And so um, I think his book was to, number one, put America on blast. Number two, to recoup a little bit of money lost from having his master strip him of everything. And what's really telling to me, and Bernice, I don't know how much time we have left, but I did want to... We have time. (laughs) Okay, okay. I wanted to read a passage from the Grimes narrative, and it's quite powerful, quite powerful, and Bill may want to add uh, a comment about it in terms of how it fits in with other slave narratives. But if I may, I want to take a moment. William Grimes says, I hope some will buy my books from charity, but I am no beggar. I am now entirely destitute of property. Where and how I shall live, I don't know. Where and how I shall die, I don't know. But I hope I may be prepared. If it were not for the stripes on my back, which were made while I was a slave... I would, in my will, leave my skin as a legacy to the government, desiring that it might be taken off and made into parchment and then bind the constitution of glorious, happy, and free America. Let the skin of an American slave bind the charter of American liberty. Oh, my goodness. Such powerful words. Such powerful words. And, Bill, I would like you to explain to the audience, I mean, this is language that you don't hear in slave narratives, um, wanting to will your skin as an indictment to the the American freedom. What would you have to say about that? Um, It's one of the most angry and ironic statements that you can find in a in a slave narrative, especially because it comes at the end. Most of the time, slave narratives end on an upbeat note. Uh, Frederick Douglass's famous 1845 narrative ends with him standing before an audience of, of predominantly white people and he's giving a speech. He's giving an anti-slavery speech, and the white people are listening to him. Here's Fred Douglas, who'd never had a day of schooling in his life, uh, and he's making his debut as he would become a, a salaried, 
lecturer for the American Anti-Slavery Society. He he's he's going to become a white collar worker. He's going to become a famous man. This is his inaugural oration. So the narrative of 1845 presents Frederick Douglass in the most positive light. It's a very hopeful kind of feel good ending. William Grimes's narrative ending uh, the way it does 20 years before is not feel good. He does not say things are getting better for me. He, he denounces the Constitution of the United States and, and uh, anticipates what I think is a really grisly um, foreshadowing of Nazism. Not, not wow. because he himself has ideas about uh, necessarily a, a Nazi world, but we, we know that Nazis took the skin of Jews and turned them into lampshades. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and Grimes is saying, well, uh, this is what I think of the Constitution of the United States. It's obviously a, a, a document contrived to make slavery legal and to enrich the people who claim other human beings as their property. So when he says, let, let my skin bind the Constitution of American liberty, well, of course, he's, he's being tremendously ironic because um, the, the, uh, the language of liberty being bound by the skin of a slave is, is sort of a massive hypocrisy. Exactly. And that's exactly what he's pointing to. He is so, definitely pointing to that. So he's um, he's filled with outrage, but it's very controlled. And uh, and when he puts it this way, he shows that um, that he does know something about the Constitution, and the Constitution is the law of the entire United States. It's not just the South. It's the whole country, mm-hmm. and the whole country still treats him as a slave. As Regina said, he's a he's been a fugitive, and uh, was in danger living in the so-called free states of being hauled back to the South to be re-enslaved. And the only way that he can avoid that is to pay this ransom to his master, which decimates all of Grimes' efforts to try to become an independent and successful man according to the American dream. Instead, he has to write this autobiography hoping it will make him some money mm-hmm. because this this man from Savannah has cleaned him out. Uh, and what sort of support, what sort of uh, um, affiliations and uh, camaraderie from his fellow Americans did he get? Well, as Regina's research shows, he, he was able to engage a white man who was willing to help him with his case. But um, but there's no evidence that any other white people, there's no evidence that anyone who was anti-slavery stood up for William Grimes or supported him or helped him get his autobiography published or anything like that. So he was by himself in another respect. He was he was really all alone, sort of a voice crying in the wilderness. Well, there's a question coming out of the chat, and uh, it's the question.
question really is, were there any details about the impact of the book and whether it actually provided him with some kind of income to survive after publishing it? Um, no, we were not able to find that sort of information um, or whether the book was well-received or how wide it was distributed. Um, so we don't have those kinds of answers. Um whether it was just a, a sort of territorial New Haven or Connecticut kind of um, book distribution, I we ha I don't know. I was not able to find that. You weren't fit. But now, since since you currently have a trailer, and many of us have seen your trailer uh, on your journey to find your ancestor, when can we expect to see a full documentary? Well, it all hinges on funding. And um, we are going to go through the crowdfunding platform of Kickstarter. And I, I'm sure the audience is familiar with that. But if not, they could tune in or find out more about Kickstarter at kickstarter.com. Um, so we, we are not going the traditional modes of trying to raise funding for this project. Um, we are depending upon the public to help in donations to make this film come to life. Um, we are optimistic. We do have a very good following, and I would love for your listeners to follow us on Facebook. Uh, please look for me. Um, friend me on Facebook or send me emails to lifeofwilliamgrimes at hotmail.com. They could also send a message to me via my website, which is www.reginamason.com. Follow us. Um, William Grimes went on his journey by himself, but he was determined. He was determined to tell his story. He was determined to publish his story, and he didn't stop. I I'm feeling the same way. I'm determined to tell my story. And very optimistic that a film will come of this. I've got wonderful support um, so far, but we need more. Uh, so we are planning to launch um, our Kickstarter effort sometime this summer. So, but I am inviting your listeners to contact me so that I can in turn contact you and let you know the progress of this, this film. And would you tell us your Facebook name again? I mean, is it is it, it your name, Regina it is Mason? It's my name, Regina Mason. Okay, Regina, that is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Well, do you have any any closing remarks you would like to share with us about you, your journal journey, or if any of them want to follow your journey, go to or uh, have a similar journey that they're going through? Exactly. I would say perseverance wins the race. Um, genealogy is very interesting. It's a lifelong endeavor. It's not as quickly of a turnaround as we see on um, the shows such as Who Do You Think You Are or Finding Your Roots with Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Um, the average person does not have the luxury of wonderful genealogists and and historians at their fingertips. So your road is going to be long but rewarding. So my suggestion to you is stay with it. 
pays off in the long run. Perseverance is the key. Well, you certainly have said something that we can see, we can feel, we know you have perseverance. No doubt about it. Absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, Dr. Andrews, do you have anything you would like to share with us before we close out? Just that I think what Regina has done is really the only example I know of of a descendant bringing an ancestor back into such full contrast and and um, there must be other people who have ancestors like Regina's who played an important role in the freedom struggle. And I hope people take inspiration from her and uh, and and take her example to heart because this is uh, this is the way that history is going to be written. Well, she is def- definitely an inspiration. She is it to to read this story, to read and understand this journey is something that even for me I can say if she can do it, I can definitely put in 15, 20 years to find the answers to questions I have about my ancestor because my ancestor is a part of American history. And all of the African Americans out there who are working on their genealogy have stories that they can share, stories that are very similar to Regina's story. So thank you so so very much, Regina. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, someone has just asked one more question. Do you want to, they want you to clarify your Facebook name again. Regina Mason. That's it. It's That's Regina it. Mason. That's and it. Also, if you can, for whatever, can't, for whatever reason, find me on Facebook, do go to my website, send me a message, and you can find me at reginamason.com. Okay, everybody, that's reginamason.com. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight and providing the listeners with your wonderful journey to reclaim William Grimes. I think that this journey is something that we're all going to see in a documentary. It's a story that needs to be told, and you are the right person to tell that story. Well, let me just share with everyone what's happening and what's coming up in the month of June. Oh, do I have a wonderful lineup. Next week, we have another African-American odyssey that will be shared with us. It's the African-American odyssey of John Kissel. And my guest is Kevin Lothar. And this is about a South Carolina slave who returns to fight the slave trade in his African homeland. So many of you have heard about the connection with the South Carolinians in Charleston and beyond and Sierra Leone. Well, this is what this story is going to be about next week. So please tune in next week. Following the the following week is June 14th, And I will be at Stanford Institute for Genealogical Research, and the host for the show will be Natan Elaine Kemp. And the guest for that show is Mrs. Gloria Ramsey Lucas. 
and her discussion will focus on the slave records of Edgefield County, South Carolina. Now, Mrs. Lucas took six years to gather all the records pertaining to slaves in an 87-year period, and she developed this book, Slave Records of Edgefield County, South Carolina, and the book was published by the Edgefield Historical Society. And so that show is June 14th. Well, what about all of you out there who have stories and you want to share those stories? Well, on June 21st, the show will focus on sharing your genealogy research through blogging. That's right, through blogging. And we have three guests who will be on that show. Angela Walton Raji, a nationally known gene- genealogy researcher who advocates for other genealogists to join the blogging community. We have Andrea Kellier, and she has been blogging away. I mean, I look forward to reading her blogs, How Did I Get Here? My Amazing Genealogy Journey. And Melvin Collier, the author of Mississippi to Africa, A Journey of Discovery, and he has recently started blogging, Roots Reveal. So that show is June 21st. Oh, but we're not finished yet. June 28th. Hey, we just finished talking about a documentary, right? Well, my guest, Leonard Smith III, who's a genealogist and film producer, will discuss how to honor the special individuals in your life, researching, documenting, and honoring the legends in your life. What about the creation of many documentaries? So June is going to be filled with, oh, just so much, so much. So I look forward to you all tuning in next week and the week after, and the entire month of June. So good night, and thank you, Regina. Thank you very much for coming on tonight. And remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives, and beyond. You continue, can continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, everyone, remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Well, thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night. Good night, Regina. Good night, Bernice, and thank you so much for the wonderful opportunity.